0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Could anyone become a samurai in feudal Japan? Were they guided by the code of the Shido, or is that just a romantic invention? Were they revered or feared? And what was their lasting legacy on Japan? In the latest in our series, Tackling the Big Questions on Major Historical Topics, Professor Michael Wirt responds to listener questions and internet search queries about the samurai. Putting your questions to him was Kev Lotchen, Deputy Editor of BBC History Revealed and the Section Editor on History Extra
3: today we're going to be discussing the samurai the famous warriors of feudal japan and joining us to explore this topic is michael Wirt. michael is professor of east asian history at marquette university in wisconsin and he's also the author of a number of books on the samurai and japanese history welcome to the podcast michael it's great to have you join us
4: thanks it's great to be here my pleasure
3: as with all of the episodes in our everything you wanted to know series the topics we're going to be talking about today are based on questions submitted by you our listeners and also the top Google search queries. Michael, we should probably start with a straightforward Google query. It's very popular. Who were the samurai? Could you give us a little bit of a brief overview to which I know that's a really
4: big question? Sure. No, that's that's a great question. It's It's always great to begin with a nice, broad question like that. The samurai were essentially professional warriors. And if we look at Japanese history in two large chunks the kind of ancient medieval period, which is, say, eight through the 14th or 15th centuries, the samurai were a mix of people. Some of them were actually nobility, although they were minor nobles who specialized in warfare. Perhaps they protected lands against bandits. Perhaps they were chasing after criminals or putting down rebellions. But even among the samurai group, in addition to the noble samurai, there were kind of your lower ranking samurai, people who would be vassals or retainers, local warriors who were loyal to more elite samurai. But once we get into the second half of Japanese history, say from the 16th or 17th centuries onward, the samurai was a very specific, distinct group of people who were elites in the sense that they helped rule Japan but, uh, you know, they weren't all wealthy uh, and they had various jobs that did not involve warfare as such.
3: So there's a definite evolution in what a samurai is almost then from
4: that time. What sort of time period are we talking about? Now? Like, How long is this age of the samurai? Right. So if we talk about the existence of the samurai, how long did the samurai exist? You know, they exist from about maybe the 8th or ninth centuries until really the end of traditional Japan, which is the mid-19th century with the Meiji Restoration. And of course, you know, the samurai of, say, the 10th or 11th centuries would be very different from a samurai of the 17th or 18th century. So there definitely is change over time on what constitutes a samurai, their position in society, the degree of respect or non-respect that they receive from other you know, groups of people in the country and that sort of thing. Could you give us a
3: bit of a potted history as to how the samurai evolved from being warriors?
4: Right. So, okay. So what we're talking about here is how do samurai go from simply being servants of the aristocracy and the emperors in Kyoto, which was the ancient capital of Japan, into having their own regime or their own kind of bureaucracy, And the beginnings of that go back to the 12th century with the formation of the first shogunate, the Kamakura shogunate. And a shogunate is essentially a small bureaucracy of samurai for samurai. And the duty of a shogunate is to kind of manage the job titles and manage the behavior of the warriors in Japan. Now, in the 12th century, it's a very weak bureaucracy. It is unable to have a say over what all of the warriors of Japan are doing. Uh, Moreover, they're still, in a sense, servants. They are ruling partners, if you will, with the aristocracy and the emperor in Kyoto. But once we get into the 13th and 14th century, now the shogunate is becoming more powerful. They have much more of a say of what goes on, even in Kyoto itself. And they become more of a warrior regime that is slowly and gradually eclipsing the power of the aristocracy based in Kyoto. Then when we get to, say, the 17th century, after a period of warfare known as the Warring States period, the samurai are fully in control in the city of Edo, which is now Tokyo. And many of the samurai become essentially bureaucrats you know, after the Warring States period, once we're in, say, the mid, early to mid-17th century, there's essentially no warfare in Japan anymore. So warriors, as one scholar put it, go from being, you know, sword-wielding warriors to sword-wearing bureaucrats. And they don't at all kind of fit the image of the you know, warrior going out in battle with armor, the kinds of things that we would see in popular culture. And they become more like scribes and accountants and managers, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And you mentioned that the shogunate, what's the relationship that evolves between the
3: shogunate and the emperor? Because there is always an emperor of Japan. Right. So I'm right in thinking that.
4: Yes, absolutely. There's, so there's always an uh, an emperor in Japan. Early in history, emperors have a lot of influence. They, they kind of directly rule, if you will. But for the most part, it's the aristocratic families like the Fujiwara family and other famous families who are famous now. If you were to take a course on Japanese literature, you would read about the Fujiwara, for example. So we go from having emperors that are important to an aristocracy that's more important, but there are still emperors there. And the Shogun is the shortened form of a term, Sei Itai Shogun, which means barbarian subduing generalissimo. And initially, the Shogun was a very temporary title. It was a title given to a warrior whose job it was to lead either a punitive campaign against some kind of major criminal or to put down a rebellion or something like that. So the, that's what the original version of the Shogun is. Uh, The shogunate, once that is created in Kamakura, which is near Tokyo, Japan, or later in Kyoto or in the city of Edo, which is Tokyo, Japan, the shogunate is seen as one of the three major institutions of ruling people and property in Japan. It's very weak in the beginning. It is a very junior partner in this ruling structure in Japan gradually it begins to to dominate and then it fully uh, takes over the de facto politics of Japan once we get into the 17th century. Now, one of the questions that I often get from students is, if in the 17th century, the shogun is so powerful, why doesn't he just get rid of the emperor? Why doesn't he just get rid of the imperial institution and be a direct military hegemon with no one else to answer to? And the reality is that the emperor and the aristocracy based in Kyoto have a very cultural and symbolic form of power. And so if you ever see an official portrait of a shogun or a daimyo, which is a type of warlord, they'll often have a portrait done in robes rather than in armor. And those robes are indicative of the rank that that warrior or that shogun or that daimyo has in the noble structure or the bureaucratic structure in Kyoto. So the warriors always kind of looked up to the aristocracy as their social betters and tried to imitate them, uh, imitated their culture, participated in aristocratic activities such as kickball or tea ceremony or something like this. And so that's that kind of uh, relationship. It changes over time uh, uh, in favor of the warrior regime. That's such a
3: fascinating relationship there. And does the emperor then lend legitimacy to a shogun over, say, another daimyo?
4: Right, yeah. So gradually what happens is that the shogun title becomes somewhat of a coveted title it becomes a title that is seen as the preeminent title for a warrior in Japan and it is a title that is always bestowed by the emperor now some military hegemon's in fact didn't want the shogun title exactly because of this they didn't want to be seen as under the thumb of the emperor but once we get into the 17th century surely the man who finally brings together Japan as a political unit if not a cultural unit He's the one who is awarded the title uh, by the emperor and is seen as the preeminent warlord in Japan. And that man's name is Tokugawa Ieyasu.
3: Brilliant! That's such a great overview of a kind of the samurai's place within Japan. See Healy ninety two on Instagram would like to know how did you become a samurai? So I suppose we should expand this out to where you chosen. Could you apply to be a samurai? Did you have to be born a samurai?
4: Right. This is an excellent question. And again, it really depends on the time period that we're talking about. If we're talking about before the Tokugawa period that begins in 1603, so if we're talking about before the 17th century, things are a little bit ambiguous. Um, clearly, there are samurai, or let's just call them warriors, who are almost like nobility themselves. They're part of the arist- aristocratic structure. They're part of the aristocratic structure. And so, in that case, you would have to be born a samurai. But in fact, once we get into times where there's a lot more warfare, there are commoners who are able to join armies of warlords and eventually become seen as a retainer or build up their own power base. And they, in some sense, become warriors. Now, would they become samurai, therefore, in a kind of general sense? Sure. Once we get into the 17th century, however, one of the things that Tokugawa Ieyasu did is he imitated the military hegemons before him, like uh, Hideyoshi and Nobunaga. And we can talk about those men in a minute. But what they wanted to do was they wanted to kind of distinguish between who was a commoner and who was a warrior. And Tokugawa Ieyasu and his uh, sons essentially solidify this idea that now you have to choose Are you going to be a commoner or are you going to be a samurai in that time period? So here we're talking early 17th century to the mid 19th century. You really have to be born into a samurai family. There are some interesting exceptions. For example, if you're a really, really low ranking samurai, especially a low ranking samurai who was poor and you didn't have any sons, you might Uh, take an influential local commoner as your son-in-law and they would change their last name. And so that commoner could essentially become a samurai. But that was relatively rare. For the most part, once we get into the 17th through 19th centuries, you have to be born a samurai. It's
3: really interesting. So another question we had um, from Sinkat Jane on Instagram was, were there any female currents to a samurai? Now, presumably this means in terms of, warriors and I guess it presumes that all samurai were male so are there female equivalents to samurai I guess what happens to those who are born samurai families who don't want to be samurai right
4: so right if you're born into a samurai family you're considered you know part of a bouquet or which means warrior household so in a sense a, a wife of a samurai is you know, a samurai woman of the sorts. But I guess what your audience member is asking here is, were there any women who were samurai in function? That is to say, were they out there engaging in warfare or something like that? Um, There is some evidence that during the Warring States period, in particular in the 16th century, there were women who took over the leadership of a samurai clan, a warrior clan, and perhaps engaged in some warfare. Um, There's a very famous figure, Tomoe Gozen, who is, according to Japanese literature, said to have gone out and fought in battles, but she is almost certainly a, a part of fiction. In other words, there's no historical evidence that she existed. Now I would say that if a woman were to take over a warrior clan for example if her husband who's the head of the clan dies she would take over the obligation of that family and that military obligation does not have to be engaging in warfare it could be something like you know managing warriors managing politics and allies accruing resources that are then distributed to warriors who are loyal to that clan or something like that. So a kind of manager type position was well, something that a warrior woman could do, especially if she took over control of the family upon the death of her, of her father or of her husband. Uh, and there is some kind of little bits of evidence that in the 16th century, there are a few warrior women who actually engage in combat. Although the details of those exploits are kind of subject to a lot of legend that is written about subsequent to the sixteenth century. So things that are written about in the 17th and the 18th centuries and on into the 20th century.
3: Related to this, just one RS on Instagram, they wanted to know more about Onabugisha.
4: Mm-hmm. Where do they fit in with a samurai? Right. So the Onabugisha is essentially this vision of a warrior woman. It, 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 it's, it's the woman who goes out there and engages in combat. Uh, I mentioned Tomoe Gozen, who's most likely not a historical figure. There's another woman, Gin Chiyo, of the late 16th century, and Ohori Tsuruhime, also of the 16th century. Uh, again, they were women who supposedly engaged in combat as they took over various roles from their father and from their husband. Or in the case of Ohori, she took over roles from her fiancé who was killed in battle. Uh, so that, that's a mix of historical stuff that actually happened and a lot of legend that is added on to them. Another time when female samurai were engaged in combat was during the Meiji Restoration. So here we're talking about 1868 into 1869. There was a domain in the northeast called the Aizu Domain, which is near and is part of what is now Fukushima Prefecture. And during that fighting against the samurai who declared loyalty to the emperor, some of those women, in fact, engaged the enemy in combat using a mixture of both traditional weapons, especially the naginata, the halberd, but also there was one woman whose family was the musket-teaching family of that particular domain, and apparently she had learned how to shoot a musket and a rifle. Uh, from her father, and she also engaged in combat. So that's uh, that's another uh, time period when we have women engaged in combat. One thing you mentioned, um, as, as part of this,
3: as you were saying, in the post-Tokugawa period, there was a distinction made between samurai and non-samurai. Um, how would you distinguish between samurai from a regular war? I mean, was that a possible thing to do?
4: Well, if we're in the Tokugawa period, all warriors are samurai, right? So there, there would be no warrior type figure outside of the samurai status group during the Tokugawa period. If we go before the Tokugawa period, well, then we get all kinds of people. We have pirates, we have bandits, we have mercenaries of various sorts. If we're in the Tokugawa period, the way you could distinguish a warrior from other groups of people, commoners, merchants, you know, these uh, farmers, et cetera, is really by their their hairstyle, the, the shaving of the front of the head and, a, and the back of the hair drawn up into a top knot. Also by the wearing of a hakama, which is kind of like a divided skirt of sorts that people who do martial arts sometimes still wear martial arts like Aikido or Kendo or Kudo or something like that. Uh, and sometimes by the carrying of two swords. Now, the carrying of two swords was a marker of status, not only of samurai, but of the occasional commoner who was on some temporary duty on behalf of a warlord or the shogun itself. But it was pretty easy to distinguish you know, who was a warrior and who was not a warrior just by looking at them in Tokugawa, Japan. What does the wearing of the two swords represent? The wearing of the two swords, it just kind of represents that you're a warrior. I mean, in the Warring States period, swords were a sidearm. You know, they were not the main weapon that you would use in combat, just like you wouldn't go into warfare shooting your pistol or something like that. Uh, And so they become the proper military attire for a warrior who is not actively engaged in combat, but could theoretically be attacked or need to engage in combat. Uh, and so they were required to carry true swords. In fact, if they weren't carrying their swords, they could be punished. Uh, and there are plenty of anecdotes of samurai during the Tokugawa period who really thought it was a bother to carry swords because they didn't really need them. Uh, they got in the way There's even a time period when there was a fashion trend among samurai to straighten their swords because they looked really uh, cool with very straight lines. And there are complaints by local lords telling their samurai, look, don't straighten your swords because it essentially renders them ineffective and you shouldn't be following these fashion trends. But it just goes to show how distant the samurai had become from their predecessors who were actually engaged in warfare, you know.
3: Evie Selby would like to know how were samurai trained? I mean, we talked about how many samurai were born into it. So is there a, I suppose, a school, if you like, of how to be a samurai?
4: Right. No, that's an excellent question. And that too, really depends on the status of the samurai and the time period. But if we Fast forward to samurai as we typically see them depicted in popular culture, in anime, manga, and television, et cetera. So, if we go into, say, the 18th centuries, maybe the uh, late 17th into the 18th centuries, there we actually know a lot about how individual samurai were trained. And one of the things that begins to develop is that every domain, a domain is essentially like a mini kingdom, if you will, or a mini state. There are about 260 or so of these domains in the 18th and 19th centuries. A lot of these domains build their own schools, uh, domain schools for samurai. And typically, what would happen is if you were, say, 10 or 11 years old, you might begin to learn how to read and write uh, at a domain school or with a tutor. And you might also learn the basics of martial arts. In particular, swordsmanship uh, and maybe archery, maybe horseback riding, which is also considered a type of martial art. Um, And it also depends on your particular domain and also your rank, what styles of martial arts, what types of martial arts, this kind of thing. So you would be engaged in both lettered learning, how to read and write. Oftentimes, you would read stuff from Chinese philosophy, the Analects. Uh, Mencius or something like that. So I often say to my students, if you want to understand samurai thought in the Tokugawa period, you should actually study a lot of Chinese philosophy, um, ancient Chinese philosophy. So they would learn the kind of lettered writing, but then they would also learn physical uh, martial arts as well. And they were supposed to continue this kind of martial training throughout adulthood, but usually once they're in their 20s, they're starting to get into the duties of their particular occupation and they're, they're training less and less.
3: And that's really interesting. You mentioned there about several domain schools. Does that mean you get a kind of distinction between samurai depending on where they've trained?
4: Right, yeah. So, you know, there are many, many different styles of martial arts, even within one particular art. So, for example, if you're studying swordsmanship, Not only will the style of swordsmanship change depending on where you live, but even within one domain, there'll be types of swordsmanship that lower ranking samurai study and types of swordsmanship for higher ranking samurai. And one of the interesting things I found in this research that I'm doing for my next book is that oftentimes the type of swordsmanship that was deemed more practical, more effective, Training that involved more sparring, you know, a kind of fencing, something that develops into modern kendo. That more efficacious type of swordsmanship was practiced by lower ranking samurai, whereas higher ranking samurai were practicing the more, uh, I don't know, the more hoity toity uh, style of swordsmanship that was deemed to be less practical. And we have examples of lords who fire the instructor of the older, more highbrow swordsmanship, and will actually hire either a low-ranking samurai from another domain, or sometimes even a commoner who is able to practice this kind of lower, lowbrow style of swordsmanship. They will hire that person to teach swordsmanship because they feel that it's more efficacious for their samurai, which clues us into something important. That is, once we get into the 19th century, especially with the presence of more Westerners in the seas around Japan and the Tokugawa shogunate and the daimyo are freaking out about, you know, we need to really re-martialize the samurai because they've become too complacent. We have all these Westerners around. That's when there is a crisis in in the samurai identity and also how to prepare samurai for possible war.
3: We're going to talk about foreign influence uh, a bit later on, but one thing you said, which is a perfect segue into another question we had from Johnson Instagram, who wants to know how similar modern kendo was to how samurai would have actually fought. So, could you learn kendo now, and you're learning similar techniques to as they would have used?
4: Uh No, not really, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, you know, I know a very high-ranking kendo instructor in Japan. He's a, a fellow historian, and we research on similar topics. And he and I were talking about a style of swordsmanship that I actually practice in Japan. You know, in Japan, you have modern kendo, which is kind of like, a, a, almost like a sport, essentially. But then you also have the old styles of weaponry that are still being taught And so one of the things that he has said to me is he's like, yeah, you know, in the type of weaponry that you learn and others learn, you're learning actually how to cut with a sword, how to actually defend with a sword. But in kendo, we're just hitting, you know, we're not cutting, we're hitting people. Uh, And so you're going to get a lot of techniques that wouldn't work with a sword because a real sword is heavier, a real sword is curved, where a bamboo sword is straight, a bamboo sword is lighter. I mean, there's some techniques that would work. For example, in kendo, there's this move where you thrust the tip of the sword into someone's throat. And yeah, if you do that with a sword, you're going to kill somebody, right? You know. Uh, but someone who does older style weaponry might think, I don't want to let go of the sword with my right hand and thrust it forward with my left hand, because what if my sword gets countered and now I drop my sword and now I'm going to get killed, right? Having said that, however, kendo is in part based out of older forms of swordsmanship, especially that type of what what we could call low-brow swordsmanship that involved a lot of sparring. So early on, there is this logic that that type of kendo-style sparring is effective because it gets you moving, it works up a sweat. It's not just prearranged two-person forms called kata, which is really what the older swordsmanship was about. This was an opportunity to train your mind to react to uh, attacks that might not be pre ranged right? You're essentially sparring. And so in that sense, I guess you could say kendo mentally might prepare you for a fight if you then knew how to actually use a sword. Um, And that was the original tension of kendo before it was modern kendo.
3: Okay. So we covered off a lot of um, samurai at war. Trace Seeker on Instagram would like to know how much of a samurai's career was actually spent engaged in conflict. So it was just, we've talked about how they were warriors. This is primarily what they did, but in terms of peace, what was the role of the samurai?
4: Right. Uh, great question. I think it depends on the time period. So if we're in the warring states period, say the 15th or 16th centuries, yeah, warriors are engaged in warfare quite a lot. Same with parts of the 14th century. But the bulk of Japanese history, warriors are engaged in other things, and it really depends on the time period. Sometimes they are doing bureaucratic work. So I mentioned that in the Tokugawa period, when there is no warfare, the samurai are mostly just doing bureaucratic work, uh, depending on their particular status. They might also be engaged in some employments on the side to earn more money. And so there are examples of samurai making umbrellas or toys. Um, In some places, there are samurai who are also doing a bit of farming. There are samurai who are engaged in trading things. There's this wonderful autobiography called Musui Story, translated into English. And he's a low-ranking samurai, and he talks about he would buy and sell and appraise swords he was a gangster. Sometimes he did fortune telling to get money out of people. Uh, you know, he just did all kinds of other very unknowable things, if you will, in order just to get by, to make a living.
3: It's so fascinating here, the breadth of roles they took on there. And it does tie neatly into a question we had from Sir Hanako on Instagram. It's a two word question. They just asked their life. <laughs> I know it's a really brief <laughs> question, but you know, in terms of, Daily life for a samurai, if if such a thing exists, is it a comfortable existence or one of hardships or particular rigors?
4: Yes. This really depends on the status of the samurai. You know, if they're an elite samurai, especially if if we go back into the nobility, the aristocracy days, then of course life for a noble warrior, uh, that is to say a warrior of noble birth, then yeah, life was great. If we go to the Tokugawa period and you're a daimyo, you're a lord, or you're a high-ranking samurai who was an advisor to the lord, yeah, your, your life might be great. You have a lot of money, Uh, you could visit red light districts, you could engage in whatever hobbies you wanted. But I would say most of the samurai are rank and file samurai and life for them was pretty tough because they had a certain stipend that was attached to their status and to their particular duties to the domain. And oftentimes that stipend was not enough. Moreover, Even a low-ranking samurai was expected to maintain appearances, which might include having servants, a few servants or something like that. So they were really strapped for cash, uh, you know, to put it metaphorically. And life was tough. And for a rank-and-file samurai, life could be boring, you know. One of the problems that a lot of domains face is that they have too many samurai and not enough jobs. So let's say you're a low-ranking samurai and your father's job was to be the guard of the Western gate to the castle three months out of the year. That would be your job. And that will be your first son's job when you have a son. It's a very boring job. It doesn't pay a lot. So what do you do with the rest of your time? You know, you might engage in employments, like I just mentioned, on the side somewhat secretly. You could do things like travel. Uh, There were a lot of samurai who applied for permission to travel to Edo to study, whether that study is philosophy or whether it's martial arts. Oftentimes, Daimyo were more than happy to say, "Yeah, okay, here you go. You know, go to Edo, do what you need to do, right?" Because it kind of got them out of their hair. And you do have examples of samurai who are who are just kind of fed up. the, The occupation goes nowhere, and so there are a lot of writers, artists, playwrights. Uh, philosophers, physicians, who were originally members of the samurai status group and essentially just left it to pursue this other occupation. Um, uh, yeah. So, so it was a tough life for, for most samurai, I would say. And in fact, at the end of the Tokugawa period, there were a lot of samurai who were more than happy to abandon the status completely because now they had freedom of movement. They had freedom of occupation more so than they did in the Tokugawa period. Um, And and they didn't miss being a samurai.
3: One of the things you mentioned that I thought was really interesting was about the father has a job and the first son gets it. So the other family members, I guess they're left to fend for themselves. (laughs) And then also, if the son's inheriting father's job, is there any social mobility, so to speak, to climb the ranks of the samurai?
4: Right. Two excellent questions. Yeah. You know, this is, this is often, you know, a joke that I make in class is if you're a a younger brother, essentially one of the options is you could serve your older brother and who wants to do that. Right. So what you would try to do is maybe find another samurai family that has daughters, but no sons. And then you would marry into that family and you would change your last name and you'd become the heir to that family. And one of the things to note here is that happened quite a lot. There's no notion of blood being important. Like you would, you would think that samurai, oh, your bloodline matters. For samurai, it doesn't, you know? So there's all, quite a lot of examples of samurai who are adopting people, you know, either through marriage, you know, someone who marries their daughter and changes their last name or someone who doesn't have children at all. And just says, I'm gonna adopt this, you know, second son from another family and he's gonna take over the family when, you know, when I retire. That was very, very normal, very, very accepted. So that was one option for younger sons. Other sons might have to try to find a job somehow in the samurai class or, you know, travel to Edo or, you know, just figure it out, really. Uh, So that's one thing. The other question is social mobility. For the most part, there wasn't a lot of social mobility for samurai. And this was a source of frustration for a lot of samurai. That's why we get, uh, you know, kind of uh, mini riots and protests by samurai throughout the Tokugawa period is they're frustrated. You know, some of them are quite intelligent. They have ideas about how they think the domain should be reformed, but they have no vehicle for having those ideas known uh, and for reforms to be put in place. Now, there are some domains, there's some daimyo who are smart and they realize, well, you know, here's this low ranking samurai who's good at something and maybe I should promote him upwards or put him in a position that allows him to help us engage in reforms. So there was some social mobility, but for the most part, no, you, you were pretty much stuck in whatever rank you were as a samurai
3: and i i suspect what we've spoken about so far the answer to this is going to be it depends on the time <laughs> and your social status of the samurai. never talked to a historian
4: um, right <laughs>
3: but actually even that in itself is really interesting because i think there's a possible perception that the samurai are a singular fixed idea
4: right uh, yeah the samurai are not a monolith <laughs> as it were
3: we had a question from Soraya McQuaid on Instagram who asked, what social implications came along with being a samurai? And I guess in this point, it, it does depend on how high status you are. Right,
4: absolutely. Before the Tokugawa period, samurai are not seen as a good thing. They're described as beasts. Uh, there's one nobleman who wrote about how warriors were no better than dogs, right? So being a samurai was not seen as a good thing. You were seen as a, as a murderous person which in a country where Buddhism was very influential, being engaged in a profession where you're killing theoretically was not a good thing. Once we get into the Tokugawa period, there's this notion that samurai should be much more cultured. They should be able to read and write and they are seen as, or at least they depict themselves as morally and ethically superior to other members in the country, and therefore, they have the right to be the rulers. Right? So, socially, I guess I would say that samurai pundits and samurai leaders really emphasized the morals and the ethics of being a samurai and, and why they have such a high status as the rulers of Japan. Other members of society, however, didn't always see samurai that way. They understood that a lot of samurai were poor, that a lot of samurai gambled and got drunk and all the things that they weren't supposed to be doing. And so we see a lot of commoners who are mocking samurai, making parodies out of samurai. And we see this in literature, comic literature, in woodblock prints. For example, in this book I just published on the samurai, there's a woodblock print of a samurai who's using the toilet and he has two retainers standing right outside of the toilet because that's their obligation to stand by their, you know, employer, their samurai employer. But it's clear that he's really smelling up the place. But nonetheless, they stay there out of loyalty, right? And so this is a a work of art that is meant to make fun of the notions of loyalty and obligation of the samurai, right? So we have a lot of mocking, parodying, humorous literature, uh, you know, Things like making fun of the accents of a samurai from Southern Japan, you know, or something like that. Uh, The kind of making fun of accents we would see in any country, right? You know, I'm sure uh, in England, you have people who make fun of this accent or the accent, same in the United States, you know. Um, But we also have commoners who look up to samurai, the idealized samurai, not necessarily the samurai reality, but they look up to this ideal of. You know, someone who is loyal or someone who is passionately loyal and willing to die for someone. Uh, so you have a lot of commoners who read war tales or uh, read books on military science. And you even have commoners who practice martial arts, quite frankly. So there's a kind of a mix of all different views of the samurai once we get into the Tokugawa period. Still to come on
0: the History Extra
4: podcast. They are the ones who are responsible for abolishing their own status because they understand that the samurai status is holding them back. It's holding Japan back in some sense because it is seen as anachronistic. It is seen as something that is backwards. It is seen as something that is unmodern.
3: who the samurai are, I suppose we should definitely talk about some famous samurai. Tokugawa sounds like a good place to start because he defines a period.
4: Right. Tokugawa Ieyasu. Yes, he's the founder of the the Tokugawa Shogunate, the last warrior regime in Japan based in Edo, what is now Tokyo. He would be one of the famous men in this group known as the Three Unifiers, or probably they're more appropriately called the three conquerors. So you have Oda Nobunaga, who's the first one, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, the second one, and Tokugawa Tokugawa Ieyasu, the third one. And they were the men who conquered large parts of Japan. Hideyoshi politically unified the country, if not culturally and linguistically, and even had aspirations to take over China and in fact he invades Korea on his way to get to China he never makes it past Korea dies of natural causes but he was a real megalomaniac who had a grand vision of taking over all of East Asia so he's a Hideyoshi is a famous guy and then Tokugawa Ieyasu all these men knew each other by the way and Tokugawa Ieyasu was a warlord who was supposed to help Hideyoshi's son rule Japan, but then decided to just, you know, work for himself, which was often what happened among samurai. You know, samurai weren't loyal unto death necessarily all the time. That's really a part of modern wartime propaganda rather than how samurai actually were. And Ieyasu is depicted as not being a particularly cruel or man. He wasn't a megalomaniac, but he was very politically astute. He lived a very long life and he knew how to put together a regime that would last. So Tokugawa Ieyasu is a famous samurai. Hideyoshi would be another famous samurai. And Minamoto Yoritomo is the founder of the Kamakura Shogunate, the first shogunate. And By samurai of a later time, Yoritomo is seen as a founding father of sorts. You know, like you see a lot of writings by samurai in the 18th and 19th century. You know, they'll say something like, since the time of Yoritomo, the warriors have had, you know, a great role in Japan or something like this, right? So they'll really look back to him as a founding uh, figure for them. So those would be some uh, famous samurai.
3: Hideyoshi is a particularly interesting one because we talked about social mobility earlier, but he he wasn't born a samurai as oh, far no, as I understand.
4: No. It. Hideyoshi, I mean, he's the classical example of the social mobility that was possible during the Warring States period. You could be someone who had a was essentially a nobody, you know, a peasant, both literally and figuratively. And rise to become a a warlord or a hegemon of all of Japan. And that's what happened to Hideyoshi. We don't know a lot about Hideyoshi's origins. He's usually depicted as from a peasant background, although it's said that his father, who he never really knew, was a soldier of some sort. So he's probably like a farmer, warrior type of guy, his father. And he enters into the service of a warrior who serves Oda Nobunaga, To make a long story short, through his own kind of charm and abilities, Hideyoshi rises through the ranks of Nobunaga's army.
1: We should
3: also talk about foreign samurai. There's a couple that I know of, would be Yasuke and uh, Bill Adams. (laughs) Right. What can you tell us about these figures?
4: Right. So once we get into the 16th century, we have many more Europeans, not only in Japan, but in East Asia. And some of those Europeans arrive in Japan, most of them missionaries, uh, Jesuit missionaries, Catholic missionaries, and almost entirely from Western Europe, uh, Spain, Portugal, uh, the Netherlands, uh, England, of course. And some of those foreigners stay in Japan, particularly... When we get into the Tokugawa period, which is the story of William Adams, is that the the story of the early Tokugawa period is that they gradually begin to shut off relations with Western countries, except for the Netherlands. And so William Adams is, in fact, not allowed to leave Japan. And he, and also Yasuke, the the African man that you spoke of, uh, and there's an Italian guy, there's another Dutch guy uh, who become they become samurai in the sense that they are officially employed by either Tokugawa Ieyasu in the case of Bill Adams or Nobunaga in the case of Yasuke they're employed by these military hegemons and so they're given a stipend in the case of Bill Adams he's actually given a plot of land as well and some servants and he's given two swords and so he becomes a samurai in the sense that he is an employee of shogun. Uh, they were not samurai in the sense that we typically think of samurai in popular culture. That is to say, they're not going out and fighting in wars and, you know, on horseback, wielding swords and stuff like that. But in fact, they're more like the historical samurai, (laughs) the historically accurate samurai, which is, you know, the bureaucrat who has various, you know, functions that have nothing to do with warfare, but they are as samurai because they're in the service of a military hegemon. So in that sense, we see a handful of European and also some Korean samurai uh, as well.
3: Hugh Birkmar on Facebook he has got an interesting question. And they ask, how much fact and how much fiction is there to the idea of the noble samurai? And he says, as opposed to murderous folks. Now, we should also talk about whether there's merit to the supposition of murderous folks. But I think it's quite an interesting question based on what you've said about how there's quite a strata in samurai society.
4: So this question of to what extent were warriors noble or murderous is a legitimate question from the perspective of pre-Tokugawa nobility who thought of warriors as beasts. They were in fact murderous from their perspective and not at all noble. But certainly elite warriors tried to style themselves like nobility. They tried to bring in notions of behavior and ethics and virtue from the nobility themselves, who in turn were taking a lot of their ideas from Chinese philosophy. So there was an attempt by certain types of samurai, especially samurai leaders, to make the samurai into a morally and ethically superior group of people similar to the literati of China, with the difference being that a samurai is nonetheless a person who can engage in warfare, right? That's the big difference. So once we get into the Tokugawa period, there's a lot of emphasis on, yes, you should be capable at the military arts, but you should also have a lot of cultured learning, you should tame yourself there's in fact a, that's the title of a book the taming of the samurai where the samurai are not supposed to be engaging in fights they're supposed to withhold their machismo they're supposed to not be offended by other people and draw their sword and just fight someone and in order to pitch that or at least promote that idea there's an emphasis on again you know studying confucianism or The Commentary by Neo-Confucian Scholars. So there's this attempt to make them noble in some broad sense. But again, the reality is that especially lower-ranking samurai engaged in drinking, gambling, uh, the example of our guy in the autobiography of Masui's story, he's a gangster sometimes. He's tricking people out of money by being a fortune teller. So it would only be a very, very small group of samurai who were diehards or zealots, if you will, the extremists who really bought into the idealized version of the samurai who might have actually been virtuous.
3: It's really interesting. There's another question on perception as a samurai coming from A. N. Tark on Instagram, who asked, to what extent could samurai be considered nationalistic propaganda?
4: Right. So if we're saying propaganda and nationalism, really we're talking about the modern world, right? When we have nation states and we have the the ability and the infrastructure to have propaganda in the first place. They are right to say that or to imply that samurai were part of propaganda. You know, this idealized samurai as someone who was willing to die for a greater cause was part of Japanese fascism. Especially in the first half of the 20th century, of course, during World World War II and the Asia Pacific War, wars with Russia and China. Even after World War II, there's this notion promoted by companies and also the Japanese government that the modern businessman who is loyal to his company and will work unto death, will work long hours, is the modern samurai in some sense. So samurai are deployed in various types of propaganda, national pride as a model for how to behave. And of course, that version of the samurai is the idealized one that didn't really exist so much in the pre-modern period as, as we've been talking about.
3: One thing I was really interested to learn was that um, the word kamikaze, um, so associated World War II has uh, its roots in feudal Japan. I wonder if you could tell us about that incident.
4: Right, that's an excellent question. So when the Mongols invade in the late 13th century, they never successfully get anywhere in Japan, and the reasons for this are varied. You know, some say that the Mongols just wanted to, you know, test to see the defenses of the samurai. Others say that. There was a huge storm that blew the Mongol-controlled armada back into the sea and this kind of thing. And that idea that there was a divine wind that blew the Mongols into the sea was an idea that was promoted by religious institutions at the time of the invasions, mostly so that they could get the credit for defeating the Mongols and probably so they could get paid in the form of land and this sort of thing. So that's where we get this idea of the kamikaze, the divine wind that would blow away the foreigners. And of course, that is also the term that is used during World War II to refer to the suicide uh, pilots.
3: Yeah, it's a fascinating connection. Um, speaking of idealized kind of perceptions of the samurai, I've got a bunch of questions on various uh, aspects, which I'd like to run through. Um, first sentence around Bushido. Um, history skills on Twitter would like to know to what degree did the Bushido code actually play a part in the lives of samurai? And kind of linked to that, a question from Guy Wilson, TN308. Was Bushido even a real code or was it a romanticism? What can you tell us about this?
4: Right. So what is Bushido, right? This is a a very common question uh, that we get. And Bushido is, for the most part, it is a creation of the modern period. The guy who popularized the term Bushido, uh, Nitobe, who wrote in English first, he lived in the United States uh, in Pennsylvania, and he was trying to describe what, are, what makes Japan unique, what are their characteristics of the Japanese. And so he wrote this book that was heavily edited by a friend of his, uh, American friend, and so he actually thought that he had invented the term Bushido. The, bu- the term Bushido actually exists in the Tokugawa period, but it was so rare that he thought he had invented it. And so what he wrote and how intellectuals back in Japan reacted to that writing when it was translated into Japanese created this vision that there was some kind of accepted code or accepted practice among the warriors. Uh, There's a wonderful book uh, about this written by my friend Oleg Benish, called Inventing uh, the Warrior Way or something like this. And he talks a lot about, he, he essentially traces how Bushido becomes a thing in the modern period. Now, the word Bushido does exist in the Tokugawa period, but it doesn't mean Bushido as a code of behavior for the samurai. It usually means like the way of being a samurai in terms of, you know, here's your occupation and here's some of the occupational things, right? It's a very basic view of Bushido. Having said that, during the Tokugawa period, there are samurai writers who do write works that suggest here are the things that warriors should and should not be doing. These are the kinds of things that they should believe in. And those would be things uh, such as duty, you know, a proper warrior should always think about, duty to his Lord and what will bring honor or dishonor or shame to his Lord and to his family. So there are these kinds of writings, but there's really no consensus. There's no codified code or anything like that. Um, And in fact, as we've been talking about the reality of the samurai, most samurai are just doing, are not behaving in any particular way. Although there are some notions, again, that you know, you should, you should serve your daimyo and do what he says. That was kind of an accepted uh, thing for samurai, of course. And there are examples of samurai who kill themselves if they feel that they have overly shamed their lords. But for the most part, Bushido is part of modern Japanese propaganda. Yeah.
3: And um, one more top Google query around the samurai of Ronin which I I think colloquially are seen as fallen samurai, but is that accurate? I mean, how would you describe ronin?
4: Right. So essentially there are two types of ronin. The ronin that most people know about, which is typically translated as wave person, uh, is a samurai whose master, in other words, a lord or warlord, has died, um, and perhaps the domain has been dissolved. So maybe the daimyo did something wrong and the entire family has been uh, erased, essentially. And so now you have a samurai who is wandering about and finding employment here or there. So uh, or a, a masterless samurai might be someone who you know, simply leaves the domain and travels about you know, finding work. So there's that type of ronin, which is the, the ronin that most people know about, but ronin can also be a particular title of an occupation for a samurai who's hired on a temporary basis. And this happens a lot with instructors of swordsmanship, so they might travel around to different domains seeking employment or maybe they're a famous swordsmen and they are, you know, sought after as an instructor. And so different domains will hire them for different periods of time. And because the samurai is not officially a samurai of that domain, they are given the the kind of title, the the occupational title of Ronin, you know, even though they might not be, you know, a masterless samurai as such. So we th- we see that happen with a lot of teachers of martial arts, but also scholars, you know, writers. Uh, who are trying to make a living being a scholar and like scholars nowadays going from place to place trying to find you know permanent jobs. Uh, that person might also be called might also have the title of Ronin, even though they aren't the type of Ronin where their master has died in warfare or something like that. Um, it's
3: an interesting question we're having from CMZZ on Instagram who asked what were the samurais who used on the Western world? And I wonder if we should expand that to talk a bit about when there's more foreign activity in Japan off that period of isolationism, how that changes samurai culture. All
4: right. Well, so the Tokugawa period is relatively cut off from Western Europe, but it still has relations with China and Koreans, the Ryukyu Kingdom. They still have relations with the Netherlands. So they kind of know what's going on in the rest of the world. Oftentimes we see Tokugawa Japan as being you know, completely cut off or isolated or something like that. And really, it wasn't that cut off. It just was very much curtailed compared to the 16th century. And there was, in the Tokugawa period, a suspicion of Catholicism, which was seen as a foreign religion with loyalties to a foreign god and a foreign institution in Rome. And there was also this notion that Catholicism was too... Uh, Exclusionary. That is to say, Tokugawa Ieyasu had a lot of different uh, religious advisors, uh, but the only ones that he kind of punished were the the Catholics who were very, you know, it's our way or the highway. And there was also one type of Buddhism that was also kind of uh, expelled from Ieyasu's inner circle because they also believed, you know, it's our way or the highway. Like no other type of religion is good. So. For various reasons, Catholicism is kept out of Japan and Europeans kept out with it. Once we see more Europeans in the seas around Japan, namely Europeans who are going to China and Americans who are going to China, uh, and that gets us into the opium wars and all kinds of things going in China, the Japanese leadership, uh, the shogun and the samurai really start to freak out because they're really suspicious that Europeans are going to try to make some kind of move into Japan. And so in the 19th century, there's this effort to, again, re-martialize the samurai, create maritime defenses and batteries along the coasts, this type of thing. They, they think of the Westerners as barbarians. In fact, they're called the Southern barbarians. Southern, because when you go to Japan from Europe, you know, you're coming up from the South, right? South, you know, the Cape of Good Hope and, the, and, and, and that kind of thing. They were seen as uncouth, hairy, smelly, uh, you know, eating with their fingers and these kinds of things, not bathing. And so they had a very dim view of Europeans for sure, and wanted to keep them at arm's length. <laughs> but it's a
3: neat little segue into another question from guy wilson who asks how do real life samurai compare to their portrayals in movies and video games i think that's quite an interesting because there's quite a a particular ideal of the samurai being one
4: thing we've talked about before right many things right um so let's take the kind of most recent popular depiction of samurai in popular culture and that would be the Ghost of Tsushima game for PlayStation 4, right? Um, I have not played that game. I've seen people play the game, so I know a little bit about it. And there we have more of this idealized version of samurai, right? You know, that there's a certain code of behavior and certain types of killings are dishonorable, yada, yada. And so in that way, there's still a lot of inaccurate depiction of samurai life. I guess we could say, and samurai values, right? The over-idealization. Sometimes in Japanese popular culture, and I believe that this has filtered into the West a little bit more, is that you do see somewhat accurate depictions of samurai. There's this movie called Twilight Samurai, for example, in Japan that was popular in the West where you see this view of a poor samurai who's, you know, engaged in other employments to make money on the side and life is tough for him. Um, So sometimes we can find somewhat accurate depictions of samurai in Japanese popular culture. And sometimes it makes its way into popular culture in the West, but something like the ghost of Tsushima seems to imply that that idealized vision of the noble, very skilled warrior with the super sharp samurai sword is, is still dominant.
3: We should head towards the end of uh, the samurai age, and I've got a perfect question from Hannah Law on Instagram on this. i ask quite simply, what led to the abolition? Because the samurai, as far as I understand, they didn't fade away slowly over time. They were banned almost by edict.
4: Oh, absolutely. So if we turn to the Meiji Restoration, 1868, and what happens in the 1870s is that the new Meiji oligarchy, which is dominated by young, oftentimes unmarried, once low-ranking samurai, they are the ones who are responsible for abolishing their own status. Because they understand that the samurai status is holding them back. It's holding Japan back in some sense, because it is seen as anachronistic. It is seen as something that is backwards. It is seen as something that is unmodern. And the Meiji oligarchs want to have a government. They want to have a bureaucracy. They want to have a military that looks like the West, essentially. And just as you don't see people walking around with swords in, you know, London in the late 19th century, or at least I don't think so, I'm not an expert, but you, likewise, the Meiji oligarchs didn't want Europeans seeing that in Japan. So they actively, in 1871, abolished the samurai status, and that brings an end to the samurai. Now, there were a lot of samurai who were perfectly fine with this, and they were more than happy to give up the swords and the, and the hairstyle and just trying to figure out how to live in a new world. But then there were a lot of samurai who were really invested in the idolization of the samurai. They were invested in the kind of elevated social status that the samurai had enjoyed, and they resisted. And in fact, the movie, The Last Samurai, Depicts a, a one of the most famous rebellions against the Meiji oligarchy by sam, well, ex samurai who are still living as if they were samurai, uh, and that is finally put down in the late 1870s. So, yes, it's the samurai themselves who abolish their own status, uh, and so there are no there are no more samurai essentially after the 1870s. It's
3: pretty interesting that film in particular presents it as. All samurai were unhappy that they
4: <laughs> right. had been abolished. Right, right. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I don't like to play the samurai police when it comes to movies, you know, because I know how things are produced and you got to do what you got to do. Um, but I think in broad terms, it does a good job of depicting the frustration that some samurai felt towards changes that were happening to them. This is a big Google question Do
3: samurai still exist? No, they do not. Is there any <laughs> it's a nice short answer? Is, <laughs> it's, is, yeah. Is, is there any?
4: Um, this
3: is an extension of. It, is there any sense of people who say like, "Oh, I'm, I have samurai lineage," right? In the same way that sometimes you have that, uh, I know the lineage of royal families that no longer exist,
4: right? um Yeah, samurai were such a small part of the national population, right? So in the Tokugawa period between 6 to 8% of the population in total was samurai. So that's not a lot. Some domains, that is to say some parts of Japan had a higher percentage. Um, I have met people in Japan who were descended from samurai. For the most part, people don't go around really bragging about that because they understand that most samurai are the low-ranking samurai, right? You know, (laughs) and... They might have family heirlooms. In fact, one of the guys that I used to train alongside in swordsmanship, who was also my mechanic, was descended from a samurai family. And he actually, uh, before I left Japan, he said, look, I've got a whole bunch of swords that my family had. So I'm going to give you this one short sword that belonged to my family, you know, as kind of like a token of our friendship. So uh, occasionally you'll see that happen. Now there are descendants of like the Tokugawa family. So there are descendants of major famous warrior clans. And sometimes they will use that as, you know, a talking point, you know, like there'll be a speaker, you know, and it's, you know, giving talks about their family heritage or something like that. But that's quite rare, I would say. Yeah.
3: I'd like to finish off by asking you what we haven't talked about about the samurai that
4: maybe we should have done, maybe people don't necessarily know about. I feel like we've touched upon so much about the samurai. I would say the one thing to remember about the samurai is that they're so diverse in terms of their culture, in terms of their occupation, and that they change over time.
0: That was Michael Wirt. His latest book, Samurai, A Very Short Introduction, was published by Oxford University Press earlier in 2021. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow for an episode on the rise and fall of Britain's Motor City.